All right, good morning. Glad you're here with us. And thanks, some of you younger folks, thanks for helping us older folks with that QR code. I could see you passing phones to younger people. It's hard to imagine the power of invitation. Let me, let me help you with this. I went to a high school because of an invitation. I stayed in that high school because of an invitation, a single invitation. I chose a college because of an invitation. I got on a certain bus in Colorado because of an invitation. Sat next to my wife without invitation. I serve as a pastor today because of a simple invitation. Would, just, would you consider Steve helping me with this? I'll bet your life is a lot alike. There, there are major decisions that you made that when you look back on them now, looking back, you think that was kind of because of a very persistent or maybe not so persistent invitation to join a job, to join a school, to join a club, to join a hobby. This inclusion is the power of relationships, that simple invitations change the course of our lives. We're going to have a chance to look at Jesus' invitation to a few of his apostles in Matthew chapter 4. But before we do that, we need to take a look at who he is and how people would have seen him. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in with a little preliminary work before we get to the scriptures in Matthew chapter 4. Father, thank you for the chance to gather together. God, I thank you for the invitation of John Hacker that kept me in school, helped me choose a college, helped me choose a profession. I thank you for the invitation of Chip Ingram that allowed me to serve on a staff that now 36, seven years later, I'm able to still pastor because of a simple invitation. I thank you for the way you orchestrated those things. And now as we study this invitation of Jesus, may it come alive for how we are living. May we recognize that Jesus is even still right now saying, come, follow me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the, before we get into this invitation, I want you to see the context of how people would have seen Jesus in the first century. And if you'll just Hang with me a little bit here. You will, it'll actually give depth and insight into some passages you've read your whole life without understanding. And it'll give depth and insight into what it means to be a disciple. Remember, the reason the church exists is to make disciples. That's the primary purpose behind what we do here. And this is going to add understanding in terms of what all it means to be a disciple. Some of it will be very familiar to some of you because you've gone through some of our 640 Life material, and it's mentioned in there. But I want to talk to you first about Jesus as a rabbi. Very seldom do you ever think about him this way, probably. I don't. I think about Jesus as, um, as king and as the Lamb of God and all of those kinds of things. But the, in his context, as Jesus walked around at the age of 30, they would have seen him primarily as a rabbi. Now, how do I say that? Well, it's because at least seven different groups of people call him rabbi. His apostles call him rabbi. John the Baptist's disciples call him rabbi. Common people in the crowd refer to him as rabbi. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, 
All of the religious political leaders of his day, they all called him rabbi. In fact, Jesus himself calls himself rabbi. Now, understanding that then, you've got to kind of know the process of becoming a rabbi. And to do that, you have to kind of see the educational system that Jesus grew up in. The American educational system is essentially like this. We have preschool, then we have elementary school, we have a middle school, then high school. And if you choose to, you'll go to undergraduate work and then even graduate work. We understand how that works. There were three systems in the Hebrew context, and let me show you these. The first one is called Bet Safir. Bet Safir was ages five or six to around 10 or 11 years old. And the primary process of this whole thing, it's called the house of the book. The requirements of this is primarily teaching the children the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And at the end of Bet Sefer, to graduate and go to, on to the next level, you have to have all five books memorized perfectly. In fact, it would be very common for you if you went into a village in Jesus' day, you would come into the village and probably work your way towards a well, get some water, and then you would hear children chattering in the background. It's called the chatter of the children. What they are doing is they are reciting the Torah over and over again, every day, making sure that they have this thing completely memorized. Now, if you do well there, then you're ready. By the way, that a gal, a children, uh, girls were allowed to be in this level, but this is as far as they could go. Then there was Bet Midrash, which technically means the house of learning. And in this system's probably ages around six, seven, maybe eight years old if it took you a long time to kind of get your Torah memorized. In this system of the Bet Midrash, what you will do is memorize the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures perfectly. Now, just for a context, that's 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, 929 chapters and over 20,000 verses. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking. I don't do memorization. I would flunk out for sure. No, you wouldn't. We just have a culture where we don't value and don't um, make people memorize anymore. You could do this if you had to. And you're looking, still looking. Y'all don't believe me. I can just tell you. You could do this if you had to. And they did. And children did this. And most children at the time when they finished this, somewhere around age 14 or 15, they are finished with their schooling. And then they would go on to the family trade, which they have technically already started probably over the last three or four years doing part-time. Now they're full-time towards that. And they're done with school. But they've got, if they made it through this part, they've got all of the scriptures memorized. Now, Pretty sure that Jesus went through these two levels. We know that, that he was raised in a home where they were very strict about trying to follow the rules of the Jewish faith. And Jesus was seen at age around 11 or 12 years old to be actually that his parents forgot him. There's some encouragement for, for parents. They, they forgot him in Jerusalem, got three days away before they realized it then came back and got him. And when they found him there, he was sitting in the temple with the rabbi and he is confounding them with his questions. We also know that Jesus in his teaching very 
um, almost fluently quotes not only the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Bible, but he quotes frequently from the Psalms and from the prophets. So that lets us know he's got these things at his disposal and in his memory. So probably he came through two levels of teaching. If you were spectacularly gifted, then you would be considered for Beth Talmud. Beth Talmud is now this um, challenge of submitting to a rabbi and then not now learning how to interpret and apply the Torah and all of the books that you've memorized. What does that mean in real life? You would choose a rabbi. That rabbi would then give you an examination. Um, he would quiz you both orally. There might be some written things you have to do. He would go, you would have to have recommendations from the, from the village that you're from, that you're worthy of this. And then if everything looked great and everything lined up and you seemed to be capable of this, then that rabbi would issue an invitation to you. And he would say, come, follow me. Now, most children do not do this. Most villages do not have a Talmud. Imagine if you could, junior high basketball. And how many junior high basketball players make it to the NBA? Or how many little league baseball players make it into the major league? I mean, this is one in 10,000, 20,000. It's really, really rare that you get invited into this last. Very, some kids don't even get into the middle one. And they'll just go straight to their family trade. But to get invited into this is like super rare. Now, with that kind of educational system in mind, let me walk with you through a passage in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a major geographical element in both Old and New Testament. It's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, means nothing to you by, based on your expressions to me. So take, think of it this way. It's two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. Here it is in scale. Okay? Most of you know Lake Tahoe, this, how it's a gigantic lake, just a huge lake. Sea of Galilee, two-thirds that size. At its, deepest, at its deepest point when it's full, it's about 125 feet deep. So one day, Jesus seems to be randomly walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me. I will show you how to fish for people. That's a very strange invitation. And they left their nets at once and followed him. <laughs> a little further up the shore, he's casually, it seems, walking along, and randomly, it seems, he sees two more brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. 
And he called them to come too. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, inside of the context of the educational system, what just happened? A rabbi randomly walks up to, apparently randomly, walks up to two flunky brothers who have not been invited to go into the higher educational system. And he says to first two and then two others, come, follow me. Now, he's walking along the shore. It just seems like that's what he does most days, right? You're just like, what is going on? But the process of being a rabbi, once you are a Talmud, you would go from synagogue to synagogue, village to village, bringing your teaching of the scriptures to anyone who might listen. He's doing exactly what a rabbi would do. Except he has no followers until now. Now, we misunderstand this because we think they're fishermen and we kind of exercise a little chronological snobbery and look down on them. Oh, they, they were fishing for a living. Like, I don't know anybody that fishes for a living or hardly anybody. Now, think about it this way. When you think about the Silicon Valley, what do you think? High tech. I know someone was tempted to say high prices, but thank you for... It's high tech. Every time, 98% of the time, when you think about the Silicon Valley, what you think about is high tech, and that's the industry that dominates our thoughts. When you think about the Sea of Galilee, the high tech of that first century was fishing. It is what most people did in the area, and it was an incredibly lucrative, successful vocation. And you can see, here's, here's a picture of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's an amazingly beautiful area. This is the area in which he would um, speak to 5,000 people and then feed them. It's the area where he would give the Sermon on the Mount. It's right there in the, in the area of Capernaum, which is where he kind of set up home base and where Peter and Andrew are from, probably James and John as well. And it's here that along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, there are no fewer than 16 ports. Here's a picture of a map from the ancient days, and you can just see, you could not hardly travel more than a mile or so before you would run into another small village all along the shores. Hundreds and hundreds of boats used for fishing in this lake. Here's what a guy, a, a New Testament scholar, J.R. Edwards, this is what he said about fishing in this area. He said, fish from the Sea of Galilee were exported and prized in distant Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch in Syria. That fishermen in Galilee comp competed in a larger Mediterranean market testifies to their skill, prosperity, and ingenuity, and probably to their command of Greek, which was the international language of both business and culture. 
these fishermen whom Jesus called were scarcely day laborers. In order to survive their market league, they needed to be, and doubtless were, shrewd and successful businessmen. We've got archaeological evidence that we believe points that Zebedee actually sold fish in Jerusalem. And Andrew and Peter are partners with the Zebedees. And this is not some little podunk thing. They've got this little canoe they dug out and they paddle out every once in a while. These are fishing businesses that will transfer and, and, and import, export their fish as far as Africa and rest of the Middle East. This is a, these, these guys are hooked up and they're hooked up in an area um, in a vocation that was lucrative. And then along comes a rabbi. <laughs> Sounds like a joke, right? A rabbi and three other guys walked into a bar. Well, this time this rabbi is just walking along the shore and he says to them, literally, it's not come follow me, it's literally here after me. Here, present tense, with continuing action. Here. It's like you would talk to your dog today. Come here. At least that's how I talk to my dog. I don't. And then he says this crazy invitation. Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Now, when you hear this idea of fishing for people, don't think hooks. Okay, that's what I know of fishing. I know very little of fishing. I'm not a fisherman. But if, uh, what I know is you get something on the end of a line that looks like something the fish want to eat. You hide hooks in it. Then you throw it out there and tug it along, hoping that some stupid fish will bite something that doesn't look anything like a frog, but you think it does, and you pop it along. Okay, I, I know there are fishermen in the room or online. I apologize that you love to do that. I have good friends that love to sit in boat and throw out stupid-looking things all the day. Okay, I get it. But don't think that. That's not what fishing was. There were zero hooks. No hooks. Think. Nets. That's why you're on the front row. <laughs> now, here's a picture of those nets as they would be thrown out. This is obviously not the Sea of Galilee based on the hat of one of the people in the boat. But you would be called fishers of people. It would be, have this idea of casting something out letting it sink down to the bottom, drawing it in and seeing if anything's in the net, proclaiming the message of what the rabbi is going to give you and see if anyone agrees. Don't think hooks, think nets. And this is somewhat, this fishers of people is called a condensed parable. What does that mean? It means nobody knows what it means. Imagine when this rabbi comes along and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. What are you going to think? Fishers of people? What does that mean? I mean, that, we're going to net folks up and, you know, bind them together. I mean, what does that even mean? And they have no context for it. It's nowhere where you can't find anything using this saying, anything in the, in the extra biblical resources. You can find it in the Old Testament. It's used a couple of times, fishing for people, and it's always negative. 
It's, it's a negative statement. So th they don't have any context for this. The, it, we only know what he meant at the time because we see what happened later. Does that make sense? So that, may, that means that we kind of understand kind of what he's doing. But these guys respond, and they respond immediately to this cryptic invitation. Come on, let's go fish for people. Now, who does he, who does he invite? Now, in this response, it says that Jesus invites them to follow him, and they immediately do so. And this invitation is that they, in Mark and in Luke, it says he invited them so that they might be with him. Now, so he's not just trying to figure out how to get a crowd. He's actually inviting these people into a journey together with him. He invited these particular people so that they might be with him. But the people he chooses aren't really like the A-team. We already know that they're guys who, have, who are not in the system. How do we know they're not in the system? Let me help you. They're fishing. Why, if they're fishing, they ain't following a rabbi. They're all in their late teens, early 20s. They got passed over. They, they didn't make the grade. They've taken on the family business. And he's now going to them and inviting them. And he does so without any examination. If you were going to invite someone, you would do some research to find out who you're inviting. And then you would give them an examination at least an oral examination, and ask them, what does 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 10 say? I mean, somehow you'd check and see if they still had their memory work done. Following me? He doesn't do any of that. And then he asked the people that he asks, first he asked Peter and Andrew. Peter is the most famous apostle that we have. He's mentioned the most in the scriptures. And it's usually negatively. His mouth engages before his brain most of the time. And he becomes the spokesman for the rest of the folks who are also flunkies. Andrew, oh, by, and by the way, Peter ends up denying the Christ and coming back. And he becomes the rock, the foundation which the church is built. And here we are 2,000 years later building on the principles that were built on Peter. Peter ends up being crucified just about the same time by Nero, just about the same time that Paul dies in Rome as well. Pretty bad year for Christianity when Paul and Peter are both killed at the same, almost the same time. Peter, they're going to crucify him, and he says to the Roman soldiers, I don't deserve to be crucified. That's the way my Lord died. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. And they flip him upside down and, and crucify him head down. Right after that, Paul gets killed. He gets beheaded. Andrew is one of the least known. We know that Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, there's, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew immediately goes over there. And as he goes, he runs and gets his brother and says, Peter, you got to meet this dude. So we see incredible zeal. 
There are some sources that say that he became a really effective preacher, but he eventually is crucified as well. And then we get James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that are nicknamed sons of thunder. Have you ever wondered about that? It could appropriately also be translated sons of anger. Have you ever known two siblings that fought all the time? And then you throw Peter in the mix? Can you imagine as the, just the four of them, forget the other eight that Jesus is eventually going to call to follow him too, that he can't keep these four people from fighting and arguing. Sons of Zebedee, I already told you about the Zebedee business, fishing business. These guys are, are pretty wealthy, and that's why John has access at the crucifixion of Christ. At the trial of Christ, he has access into the priest, high priest's courtyard because he apparently is from a pretty wealthy family. James, we know a little bit of. He's the first of the 12, well, besides Judas, who self-inflicts his death. James is the first one that's executed. He's beheaded. He's the only one that, whose death is recorded in the Scriptures. You can find it in Acts chapter 12. He dies so early that Scripture's still being written. And then John is the second most famous, uh, top two kind of guy in terms of the apostles, and John is probably the youngest of the apostles, and he's referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. John, James, and Peter are the inner core three. Those three get to go where nobody else gets to go. Jesus will leave the other nine aside and go and have the transfiguration or go and raise a dead girl to life or go up into the garden to pray and ask the rest of them to stay over there. But he asked James and John and Peter to come with him. These are in the inner circle. John is the only one of the apostles who does not die a violent death. He dies of old age. John would have been, he, we know from some extra biblical resources that John was probably in the church in Ephesus at his death. He was probably close to 90 or 100 years old. Can you imagine being in the church that John was in? Well, here's the crazy thing. That same church had Mary in it as well, the mother of Jesus. Now, there's a Christmas program for you. Mary, come on up and tell us that story about how Jesus was born. I mean, forget about a cantata. We don't need no stinking cantata. We got Mary. Mary, come on up. You got, you'd also have Paul. You'd have Timothy. Titus, I mean, it's a cool church. It's a cool church. But you look at these guys and you go, now, add to this the other eight. And we don't know a ton about some of the other eight, but we do know a little bit about some. Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot has given his life to defeat Rome and to come under, to get out from under the rule of Rome. He's probably been involved in demonstrations and maybe even killings. And on the other side of the table, you've got Matthew, the author of the gospel that we're reading, who sold out his country and has worked and gotten rich by working for Rome. Imagine those two guys in the same group. Talk about a life group with some issues. I mean, you got brothers that can't stand each other and are fighting all the time. You got Peter who won't shut up. You got Matthew who sold out and Simon who wants to stab him in the neck. And that's just the beginning. Don't you still got Judas who's trying to steal everybody's money and eventually is going to lie and betray Christ. I mean, this, this is who he chose. 
this invitation that calls these people in. I mean, what is Jesus doing? It sounds like a horrible succession plan. The rabbi is to pass on his great teachings and understandings of the scriptures to his group of disciples that will follow him everywhere he goes. But Jesus doesn't have 15 years. He's got to get them all whipped into shape in three. And he chose them. And I'll tell you what, I praise God he chose them. Because that means there's room for me. And there's room for you. Very few in this room, I know some of you will argue with me, but the truth is very few in this room are brilliant. It's just the truth. Possibly no, nobody. I'm sure about this guy. I know where I stand. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I don't know. If, if, if you're brilliant, we probably don't like being around you much. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't make that a requirement. He doesn't go after the great students or the really religious people who are following all of the rules. He goes after folks like me and you. But you got to understand what he asks of them. He doesn't say, embrace a set of statements about me and then occasionally do something kind. Jesus died, rose on the third day. I affirm it. And I don't know, about 10 times a year I go to church. And I sing some songs that I don't recognize about the truth that I say I affirm, but in reality, it ain't much of my life. How much of the life of the apostles was Jesus asking for? Every single picking second. Christianity was never meant to be some kind of a behavior modification program so that you could feel good about yourselves. He's asking you to set aside the things that you are naturally most devoted to, your vocation and your family, and put him first. First, he's first. If he's not in front of you, you're screwing it up. In fact, that's what Peter does. What happens when Peter says, I don't like that whole crucifixion idea. We gotta do something different than that, Jesus. Jesus says to him, get behind me. You're acting like the devil. Get back where you belong. You're not supposed to lead this. You ain't setting the agenda. And this invitation of a journey, a life together, means that your family, of course, is still important. Your vocation is still important. By the way, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they all fish again. They fish again. They go and see their family. I know, we know because we go, they, they go to Peter's house and Jesus heals the mom. Mother-in-law, one of them. Can't remember which right now. Somebody's supposed to help me out and yell it out, but y'all don't know either. So, hey, I should have shut up. Mother-in-law, right, thanks. In this journey, now here's the great part about it. First, 
There's no examination. All are welcome. Follow me. Not just some of you. He's, he's extending that invitation to everybody within the sound of my voice. Follow me. But here's the real deal. And what does he say? I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. It's on him. He picks these 12 losers and he says, I'm, I'm going I'm to do great work in 11 of them. Which is a pretty good, if you grade on the curve, I'm 11 to 12, that's pretty good. He's going to do the same thing for you. You say yes and line up behind him. And he will make you into the man and woman you'd long to be and he intends you to be. That's the invitation. And that's why discipleship becomes, starts to go together. When, you, when we understand we exist for this kind of relationship. Yes, it's different. We don't call it Hebrew names anymore. But the invitation is still the same. Here. Behind me. When I take a step, you step. When I sit, you sit. When I rise, you rise. Learn to live life. Sit under my yoke. Yoke would have been a term in the first century for a package of a rabbi's teaching. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Behind me. Don't lead. Every once in a while, I kind of lag behind. Jesus is still way out there, but he's way out there. Or sometimes I try to kind of take my own road. And every once in a while, I try to push Jesus aside and say, I think I, I, think I got it from here, thanks. Thanks for the first part, but I, I got it now. And every time you find yourself in those kinds of situations, Jesus is going to say, behind me, dude. Come on, it, it works better, trust me. Behind me. There are some of you who have never said yes to that invitation. You're going through some motions that are spiritual. You're seeking. It's not, it's, I'm not saying you're a bad person or anything like that. I'm just saying Jesus isn't in front. Jesus is just something you're kind of looking at, exploring about what it might be. Invitation is as fervent now as it's ever been. He's saying, come. Come on. Follow me. There's some of you who have dropped behind, some of you who are trying to run your own life. Come and follow me. And it's from that follow position, I will make you into the people I intend for you to be. We talk about this all the time here. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? We've, we've adopted the phrase 640 disciple, which is from Luke 640, which says when a student's fully trained, they become like their teacher. The essence of following Jesus is living a life that's centered on three loves. Love God, love your neighbor, love one another. I hope many of you could say those along with me in your mind. That's the essence. It's more than that to follow Jesus, but it's always at least that. And it's always in the process of following Jesus. Say yes to the invitation. Come. Follow him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that all are invited and none disqualified. Would you give us now the kind of courage it takes to say yes to the invitation or the kind of courage it takes to realign our lives back behind Christ our King.
in either instance, may Christ be glorified in us. May your will be accomplished in us, individually and collectively as if it were in heaven. Thank you for this kind of invitation and love. In Jesus' name.